Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000083 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host broadcasting to you from Radio City Docklands in marvellous Melbourne. And as we know, Radio City Docklands is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I pay my respects to any mob that are out there listening tonight. And um, we always note on this show that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Nothing academic about it. Now, we've got a larger show for you tonight. Um, Around this time last week, the state budget had been released, and while it was too early to digest and report some of the key elements to you or what it meant for Aboriginal Victoria, I did say that over the coming weeks we would attempt to unpack that for you. And so that starts tonight. In the second half of the show, friend of the program, Jill Gallagher-AO, will be here to talk through the $357 million announced for Victorian Aboriginal communities in last week's budget. And as a leader in our community and as the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Jill has a very clear perspective on what this investment potentially means for our mob in a very practical way. I should also note that at this point, though, that not everyone in the Aboriginal community is happy with the budget. I'll I'll cite a couple of examples. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service has been highly critical of the amount afforded its service at a time when imprisonment rates and uh, youth detention rates continue to grow exponentially. Likewise, Jira CEO Antoinette uh, Braybrook, I saw on social media this week, has been critical of the funding or lack thereof afforded to domestic violence services for Aboriginal women and Aboriginal women fleeing domestic violence services. So we'll attempt to get their perspectives in coming weeks also. But let's remember the next state budget will be handed down in May. Uh, Discussions, meetings and decisions are already being made as to what will go into that budget. So if we can continue the conversation and delve into the issues that need to be addressed, then hopefully we can influence policymakers and those that control the purse strings to think about these matters when they are contemplating their decisions in our own small way. Now, speaking of our decision makers, shortly I'll be joined by uh, the Victorian Attorney General, Jill Hennessy, MP. Last week, an expert reference group on public drunkenness released its final report entitled Seeing the Clear Light of Day, a reference to Yordi Yorda woman, Auntie Tanya Day, who tragically died while in uh, police custody back in 2017. We've covered that story and the subsequent coronial inquest on the show on a number of occasions. But one of the major reforms the family of Aunty Tanya and advocates called for was the abolishment of public drunkenness laws. And that's exactly what the expert reference group has suggested, and it's uh, included 86 recommendations in that report as to how we actually might be able to go about that in a very real sense in Victoria. And uh, thankfully, the Victorian government, through the Attorney-General, has accepted those recommendations. So we'll find out what that means, again, in a real-world sense, trying to make sure that everything we talk about on this show applies to the the real world. So there's a lot to unpack, so much unpacking. But as always, if you want to get in contact with me, the best way is to do that is via my uh, my Twitter handle, at MrDTJames. Independently yours, Triple R. 
Um, now, the untimely and tragic death of Yorta Yorta woman, grandmother and mother, Auntie Tanya Day, and the subsequent strength and resilience of her family has acted as what the expert reference group on public drugs has called a clarion call for change. Indeed, this is how the first paragraph of the reference group's report reads. It reads, there is a clear, compelling and urgent imperative to overhaul Victoria's current approach to people who are intoxicated in public. The current punitive criminal justice-led response to intoxicated people is unsafe, unnecessary, and is inconsistent with current community standards. A safer, sensible health-based approach is required that ensures the health and safety of all Victorians, particularly our most vulnerable. And the government's report has been, um, and the government's position has been consistent with what they announced um, in the lead-up to the coronial inquest into Arnie Tanya's death and that it has committed to decriminalising the offence of public drunkenness. So, fortunately, we have Jill Jill Hennessy MP, who is the Attorney-General of Victoria and has been since uh, 2018, and I'm very pleased to say that she's on the line now to talk with us about some of the practical ramifications of decriminalisation of public drunkenness. Attorney-General, welcome to the mission, and sorry about uh, the the pause there. I I had us both on mute. Well, it's not often, Daniel, that a um, politician uh, feels very happy about being muted, um, but I reckon um, your listeners would have been with you on that one. No problem whatsoever. In fact, if there was a if there was a theme to the horror that we've all endured this year, it would be, you're on mute. You don't know how many times have people said that, so no problem whatsoever. It's terrific to be on the mission to talk about um, an issue that um, has been hanging around unresolved in this state for 30 years, and I'm really delighted to be with you. Indeed, 2020 is the year of the mute. Um, look, the reform to, <laughs> to, to change this this area of law has brought us in line with most other states and territories, apart from Queensland, I understand. Why is it, why has it taken Victoria so long to reach this point? Look... It is, I think, a matter of um, great shame for Victoria that 30 years ago that the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody made this recommendation and it's just never really been enacted on. And that that kind of, I think, um, really doesn't stand us in good stead. You know, we like to think of ourselves as a pretty progressive place um, and I, I really just think that it has not been given the attention and the focus and the priority um, that it's deserved because it's not only been um, the Royal Commission 30 years ago that recommended this, there's been, you know, a series of um, inquiries and proddings and, of course, um, I know from the perspective of um, the Aboriginal community in Victoria, it's been advocated for, for too long. It's been more than 30 years. There's been enough prompts. There's been enough people telling us to do this. It's about time we just got on and got the job done. Um, the, the government is committed to moving to a public health model when it comes to the public drunkenness. What, what, are, the, what are some of the key elements of, of that public health response? Well, part of our commitment is to say, let's put, let, let's put a line in the sand and, and pass a law that basically decriminalises um, public drunkenness, takes it out of the Crimes Act, and in the interim, that we work with um, all of the health leaders and community and we've made a commitment to invest $15 million next year to develop what might be 
different models in different places. And, and what the expert reference group have really kind of identified is the kind of one-size-fits-all approach um, doesn't necessarily work. Different regions, different locations need different approaches. So having a public health model means that we don't want people just simply because they're drunk necessarily ending up in a police cell. And, you know, first responders don't necessarily be wanting, don't want to be spending, um, you know, their time and resources there. So we've got to find a model that's culturally appropriate, that where we've got and we're utilising all of the incredible resources that the state have when it comes to Aboriginal controlled health services and organisations, and taking it out of the domain of the criminal law and having a police like that um, and actually having a response where we're keeping people safe, where it's culturally appropriate and where it's used as an opportunity to connect people to services. Um, and that's essentially part of the important um, lessons that we constantly learn about things that we deal with through the criminal law. I used to be the health minister, so I um, have a pretty strong understanding, mm. having come from the health system into the justice system. Um, but, but ultimately, criminalising addiction and drunkenness um, we don't treat anything. We don't make anyone safer. The Victorian community is no safer. We don't kind of help people get back on the straight and narrow and better connected with services and community when we criminalise things. Um, and there are a whole range of risks, particularly for Aboriginal communities and other vulnerable groups. So it's about using a health-led response. But we've still got a lot of work to do, but we are going to introduce the legislation this year and give ourselves some time to get trial sites up and running. Um, but my fear is if we don't get on and put a stake in the ground and introduce the legislation this year and say, you know, this should not be treated as a crime, then we'll never do it. Um, and, uh, and, and we don't want um, people to endure any of the horrific losses or injustices that have already existed because governments haven't got on with doing this in the past. So, as you mentioned, there will be an establishment of uh, trial sites um, of the health model. Um, uh, the, the the idea is to work closely with um, the Aboriginal community. Will, will, will the establishment of these trial sites be, be led by the Aboriginal community? Or will they be working closely yeah. with, within their own communities with other authorities to, to get this up and happening? Look, both. Um, both is really the answer. And um, I know Martin Foley, who's the Minister for Health, and as I said, this is going to be um, kind of auspices out of the Health Department, not from the Justice Department, but we'll be working with um, both the Expert Reference Group, the Aboriginal Controlled um, health organisations, lots of people from the drug and alcohol movement in Victoria, um, first responders. We know that we've got to kind of get it right. Um, I know that you've got the lovely Jill Gallagher coming on um, um, a little bit later uh, yep. too. But we, we are so lucky in this state that we have incredible expertise to help us um, develop up these sites. Um, and and we absolutely have the message very, very um, loud and clear that making sure that we've got kind of Aboriginal controlled and governed health services as part of the solution here is a critical part of the pathway going forward. Yeah, when I was doing my research um, for, for this interview, 
um, Jill Hennessy. I, I checked um, the, the positions of the various peaks and, and from VACA through to um, VACCHO, through the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, there is broad support for the decriminalising of um, public drunkenness. And so it's, it would seem that those peak agencies stand uh, ready willing and able to to assist in the development of some of these models. Um, the, the Absolutely. We've got, we've got, we, we do have to get it through the parliament, Daniel, and yeah. these things I'll are ask. always um, a bit of a contest as well. So um, I'm not counting my chickens before yeah. they hatch, but, um, but, but um, you know, certainly the Andrews Labor government sounds very, very um, focused on doing everything we can to try and get this bill through the parliament. So let's get to to some of the the opposition to this idea that has surfaced over over the weekend. The Police Association Secretary Wayne Gatt referred to the reforms as dangerous virtue signalling. He suggests that it is effectively planning to legislate before a plan to implement has been even developed. Um, what, what do you say to, to that sort of criticism? And that that criticism has also been backed up by the opposition. Um, are you yeah. going to be able to stand up to the police association on this? Oh, look, um, I've got um, a very strong commitment for us to make sure that we're able to work through with all people that are going to be involved in this change. Um, but I, I disagree very strongly with that characterisation. And, and I think um, when Muriel Bamblett kind of came out over the weekend and kind of made the very important point, I think, that virtue signalling doesn't prevent Aboriginal deaths in custody. Action does, and yeah. the community's been waiting 30 years. So, you know, there's no doubt in my mind or no question that there's still work to be done, and and, and that is why the expert reference group has said, you know, um, get the legal works, let's commit to decriminalisation of public drunkenness and let's take the time to get the health sites up and running. And the law won't take effect until those things are up and running. Um, so I'm really committed, um, as I know, uh, everyone involved in this, to make sure that we're able to work through what people's concerns are and to keep focused on what it is that we all agree on, and that is that a health response is um, is absolutely critical to this issue. Um, I don't want to dismiss out of hand the concerns that people have um, and that they've raised, but but I but I am determined um, that we get this change made. Um, and I do believe that if they can do it in all other states, except for Queensland, I think is the only state that hasn't yeah. then we can do it here. Um, we are a capable, problem-solving kind of state. Um, it is well and long overdue. And I think the point about saying let's commit to decriminalisation and building a public health model, the point about doing the law first is about a stake in the ground. It is about the fact that there's been 30 years of no action on this particular recommendation from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, it is about saying we're going to set ourselves a task and we're going to solve this problem together and we're going to put in place the right sorts of approach so that the thing that everyone agrees on, which is a health-led approach, is, is much better in this space. But let's solve all those problems together. And I, I recognise that, you know, there's some different views in the field at the moment, um, but but I, I feel confident that we can work together um, to ensure that everyone has a high degree of confidence about the model that we get put in place. 
And the real issue is we can't afford to ignore this any longer. And and, and I'm not going to um, I'm not going to um, uh, 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 stand by and and, and let that occur. One of one of the concerns about the the proposed model comes from the from uh, Tanya Day's family themselves, uh, which of course were very instrumental in driving change in this space. Absolutely, uh, they were. They were indeed. While they welcomed the the report and its recommendations, they're still concerned that the police will be in many cases part of the first response teams. Um, what can we do to allay some of those concerns and make sure that we're not reverting to quasi-law and order responses to, to public drunkenness? Well, look, I think we've got to work together to address those fears because I think the issue that has certainly been emphasised from the perspective of first responders, whether that's police or ambulance officers, etc. What people want is they want the certainty of of, of knowing um, that there is a service and a response there. And so it's this real issue all about trying to build confidence in the health response. Um, and so you don't necessarily have first responders kind of feeling that they're the ones that are going to be held liable if they don't respond, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, and I very strongly believe that building confidence in the health response um, is going to be such a critical and important part of this change. And we've seen it in this state, how we can start to drive cultural change around things that really require not just a, you know, not, not a criminal justice response. We've seen it in the way that we've driven change around mainstreaming family violence, talking about safe, you know, talking about safety, looking at ways in which we get agencies and communities working together. And, you know, we're not there yet and there's a lot of work to be done. But when we seek to shift something from being purely responded to in the criminal justice model into a health model, it's challenging and it's hard. And the emphasis has got to be upon making sure that we've got confidence in the health response from the perspective of the Aboriginal community, but also from the perspective of other people in the community, whether that's police or ambulance officers as well. Um, yeah. and, and I think it's really critical that we work collaboratively uh, with them along the way. And I know that they are committed um, to, to, a, to a health response. They've certainly emphasised that with me. We've just got to make sure that we're not leaving people behind along the way and that we're sharing... Um, you know, a, a, a better out, better outcome, a better health outcome about these issues and making sure that no one feels that, you know, they're going to be um, held responsible for things that they haven't done um, as we chart a new course for a change that is long overdue. Um, and I think we can do that, but it does mean that we've, we've got to work together. Um, you, you said that um, the idea is to have the 24-month implementation period in selected sites, which are yet to be selected, um, and then you'll move to you know uh, the, the proper legislation to fully de decriminalise public drunkenness in in 2022. Um, no, I no. Hopefully, hopefully, what we know, what, what what the ambition, what our plan is, is to introduce the legislation and have the legislation then take effect in 2020. Okay, right, okay. So, so introduce the legislation so, and, I, and, and have the legislation you, come into effect right. in 2022. That's right. right. So you can pass legislation and have the date of its effect. 
um, in 24 months' time to enable the um, preparation um, uh, and the development of that health model. And, and so one of the issues that has been in debate is to say, well, why don't we make sure we've got the health model all in place before you um, put the legislation in? And I think a very strong, my very strong response to that is uh, people have been trying to um, work towards solving this problem for 30 years unless we actually put a legal deadline um, on ourselves um, that will focus our mind. In the most recent state budget, the government's committed... Um, $16 million for the purposes of developing these sites. Like, let's get serious and do the work. And because there are, there are a number of, um, there are a number of um, uh, things that need to be built around this. So there's, there's places of safety that need to be established. There are um, transport models that need to be established. There, are needs, there need to be um, new sobering up services. So um, th- that'll all take shape during the, um, the 24 months that... Um, this program will be trialled. Well, has what's their mechanism for deciding where the trial sites will be? Is there going to be a steering group or an executive group, or we just got to look at the raw there data? Is, there is, and we, we are looking at um, um, the data and and the health department. And as I said, is you know this is going to be led um, with community within the health department, not the justice department, where where um, where I come from. Um, but with and alongside um, community and the Aboriginal Controlled Health Services um, and looking at really where the need is, what have we already got in place? Um, what's worked informally? A lot of people a lot of people work to solve these problems informally where we've got resources, you know, already in place. Um, where is the need going to be? Um, how do we make sure that we're able to leverage off um, existing resources, where do we need to put new resources, how do we make sure we've got Aboriginal controlled resources um, in place to um, support this response, what is the service connections between um, a lot of this work as well. Um, None of these are impossible. These are things that are done all the time in um, the health sector um, and particularly at the urging of the Aboriginal controlled health sector. Uh, So it is um, about kind of leveraging off the expertise that is already there. I think the we're I think we're very fortunate in Victoria and that we've got you know 30, 32 Aboriginal community controlled health services that are embedded in their local communities and have been for um, over forty years, and so the the level of expertise on the ground. Fantastic, fantastic models that they're already using. Sometimes you know, kind of beyond. Um, the bureaucratic designs of government, you know. So sometimes it's about us better enabling and supporting those things. When we do have, you know, we do have challenging issues that we've got to resolve around transportation and what's the legal authority under transportation, what are we know um, that drug and alcohol services more generally um, are under, you know, pressure and we've got to make sure that we're investing in those We've got to make sure that we're supporting Aboriginal controlled health services in order to um, provide um, really good support in the AOD space. We've got to work with local government from a um, kind of liquor licensing perspective as well. So all of those things are things that the expert reference group have reflected upon and 
various inquiries and reports. The expertise is not what we are lacking here. That's um, right. The focus, the purposeful focus on solving solvable problems is what we really need to get our energies on. And and without putting a bill through to decriminalise public drunkenness and setting ourselves a deadline about that, my fear is, and our history has shown us, that it will fall off the priority table and, and we've let that happen for too long. So we've really got to draw a line in the sand on this stuff. Well, there'll be many of us... Um within and without the Aboriginal community that will be taking a close um, look at um, how this unfolds, particularly over the next 24 months. Uh, it would be great to get you back on the show to talk about other justice uh, matters, the over-representation of Aboriginal people in, in the in the justice system, um, uh, a whole suite of others, but it would be great to have you back to, to talk through some of those issues as well. That's what we bang on a fair bit here on the mission. I'll, I'll come back you, um, if you play um, a bit of Bob Dylan music, which I understand you're a bit of a fan of. Yeah, see, uh, the work, work gets out. Look, before I, before I let you go, just two quick, <laughs> two quick questions, two quick questions. People sure. that don't sure. wear um, face masks um, over their nose in supermarkets, what's the non-parole period there? Um I can't tell you off the top of my head, but I can tell you. I can tell you what the social non-parole period is. Um, it means you're letting down the team. It means that you're putting the rest of us at risk. It means that everyone else is making the sacrifice to get us to a, you know, many, many, many weeks now of triple zeros. We've all paid such a big price. Um, there's just really, I think, such an urgent need for us to make sure that we um, together try and hang into the, you know, hang hang by the rules. It's not too much to ask. I can tell you as a person that has um, been up close and personal with the challenges of corona mm. this year, um, that don't risk it. And don't risk it for ourselves, but don't risk it for other people that you love. And all you've got to do is look across into other countries and see the horror that is unfolding. Um, and we should never take what we've got for granted. We've got to keep investing in and securing it. Um, don't go to the bloody supermarket if you're not prepared to wear a mask. That's my message to those people. And when we speak again, I'll ask you about um, middle-aged men who drive overly loud vehicles, whether they're cars or motorbikes. But we've run out of time. Um, thank you so much for your time, Attorney General. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for your time, and um, hopefully we'll speak again um, a little bit further down the track. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Last week, the government handed down its budget where it was announced that $357 million for Victorian Aboriginal communities would be allocated to said Aboriginal communities. But what does that look like and what does that mean in real terms? Well... Fortunately, we have someone on the line now that is well-placed to talk us through some of those initiatives that were announced last week. Jill Gallagher-AO is a Gunditjmara woman from Western Victoria. She's a highly respected Aboriginal leader who has dedicated her life to advocating for the Victorian Aboriginal community. Jill has spent the past 20 years advancing Aboriginal health and wellbeing through her work with uh, Victorian Aboriginal Community Control Health Organisation, 
which of course is the peak organisation for Aboriginal health in this state. And it has a membership of 32 Aboriginal community controlled health organisations across the state. And of course, Vacho works closely with uh, partner organisations, government, non-government, community sector to advocate on Aboriginal health, uh, both within Victoria and broadly. Now, I did say that she does have an Order of Australia, but I think her greatest uh, accolade that she could possibly have is that she is a friend of the show. Um, Jill Gallagher, welcome back to the mission. Oh, Daniel James, thank you again for inviting me. No sweat. Now, I'm going to start off with a very simple question first up. The the budget last week, good or bad for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living in Victoria? Well, you know, when you look at the overall figure, Daniel, of 357 mil, um, it, it, it's a good start, isn't it? It is. Uh, I mean... I mean, if if, if you don't, I mean, I think it's a very you and me start. sitting in you and me sitting in the cramp office um, twenty years ago in Bacho, if we were told that one day a Victorian government would invest three hundred and fifty-seven million dollars in Victorian Aboriginal communities, you, we were, we both would have fallen out of our chairs, I guess. Oh, of course. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not very often you see this much investment in one budget, and I know we got a. Um, uh, a budget in May uh, coming down again, so I'd be really keen to see um, what's coming out of that. But, you know, we know um, housing is a humongous problem in our communities here in Victoria. Uh, access to good, affordable housing is a humongous problem. So that's a very welcome um, bucket of money. And also, you know, kids in out-of-home care. Um, mm. Our um, statistics in that area is outrageous. So it was very good to see um, 86 million um, um, allocated to Aboriginal children in care. I think that's really good. Yeah, I think that's a testament to uh, all the all the generations of people that have advocated in that space um, over so many years to try and reduce the rates of Aboriginal children and out of home out of home care. Um, uh, you said before that three hundred fifty seven million dollars is is a good start. How much further do we do we need to go to to address some of the big issues that we confront? Well, there's a lot. I mean, I can't sit here and give you a figure, but there's still mm. a lot to do uh, when you look at um, Commonwealth Government and State Government have just signed and the Aboriginal community have signed um, the new Close the Gap Agreement. Um, when you look at the um, statistical data uh, with Aboriginal communities right across this country, let alone in Victoria... Um, we still live well under, a lot of our communities still live well under that poverty line. Mm. Um, you spoke before in your opening remarks, Daniel, about the um, um, over-representation of Aboriginal women in the um, justice system. Um, you know, it's alarming rates and it's not getting better, so we've got to, we've got to do something. We, there's still a lot more to do. And that's, that's, um, that's a health issue as much as anything else, isn't it? Uh, Jill. Um, oh, very much so, very much so. When you look at the, um, the the Aboriginal service system here in Victoria, which is unique um, to the rest of Australia, by the way, um, we have 
services that um, we have organisations that provide that holistic approach to health and well-being. Um, so, you know, you go into a co-op or you go into, say if I was living in Shepherd and went into Rumbalara, mm. um, um, I can talk about if I've got housing issues, I can talk about if I've got mental health issues, I can talk about if I've got, you know, um, just sheer, um, you know, unemployment issues. And the list goes on. So our yeah, co-ops incredible. provide those wraparound services and we're unique. Yeah, I'm one of the things I've been asked a bit about how, um, you know, the Aboriginal community responded to to the COVID um, issue and, of course, the, the pandemic's not over. But one of, one of the things I was telling people is that through the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector or the community-controlled organisations that we have around the state, they have been postured over the past 40 years to deliver public health messages to their community day in, day out. So when a um, pandemic came along, all the infrastructure, all the all the media channels, all the communication channels to pump messages around COVID-19 were ready and there to go when the pandemic hit. And I think that's one of the reasons that we saw um, relatively low numbers in the Aboriginal community uh, when, the, of course, the great fear was that um, COVID would would run would um, run rife through through our community. Um, that's that's a that's a testament to Aboriginal community control, isn't it? I think it's a humongous testament because you know in in Victoria, Aboriginal communities there's, there's you know there's really except for I think it's Mildura that's classed under the uh, Commonwealth um, classification of remote. So we don't have. Um, the luxury in, in a world pandemic where we can cut off our communities, there's only one road in and one road out, yeah. um, like other parts of Australia. So in an urban setting, urban-rural setting, where we're not, we don't all live on missions, um, it was really, um, it was quite a uh, challenge. But a mm. lot of our organisations were very innovative uh, and creative um, to keep community safe. I'll, I'll just and, speak and, about you know, I'll just speak um, about VARS, for instance, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, because that's the health service you know I've had um, exposure to uh, over recent months. That the proactiveness of of that health service alone, in terms of transporting medications to the community, um, getting screening up and happening. Um, in, in a safe way, organising PPE for its workers, but also for, for members of the community, was absolutely phenomenal and um, uh, inspirational. And that sort of thing happened around the state. Very much so, Daniel, very much so. I mean, and, and while we're speaking about VARS, I mean, VARS has very strong um, ties to um, a well-known restaurant. Yes. Um, uh, Charcoal Lane. Um, so during the pandemic, of course, Charcoal Lane couldn't operate as a restaurant, so Vars and Charcoal Lane got together and thought, okay, well, we'll deliver um, uh, meals on wheels. Um, can I say, I would have liked to have received some of those meals on wheels. Um, <laughs> that is top shelf meals on wheels. Very upmarket meals on wheels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, delivered to community who needed it and elders. Um, and that was, that was innovation. Yeah, yeah, absolute innovation, and it's a it's a it's a it's a role model that 
Um, I think because of the the uniqueness of Aboriginal communities, um, unlike um, some other sections of the community, I guess, it's something that will be there in memory and will be there in practice if uh, another pandemic comes along, in which there is every chance that that will happen um, sooner rather than later, given, you know, global warming and, and the increasing population. Um I don't know whether you caught the conversation I had with the Attorney General just before, but um, I've, I've read through um, uh, media releases that Vacho has put out and that, that um, you have also congratulated the expert um, re- reference group on the recommendations to um, decriminalise public drunkenness. Um, are you happy to see um, reform in that area? Oh. Well, how many years have Aboriginal communities been asking for this and been lobbying for this? Uh, Generations before us. It is exactly right, Daniel. So I take my hat off to uh, Jill Hennessy. Um, She's a leader in her own right, and uh, when she was um, in health, she also um, led some reform in health too, so I thought that was very good. So, yes, I think it's a long time coming much needed, and it will have a big impact, now, um, positive impact. Given, given your role as the former Victorian Treaty Advancement Commissioner, you must have been um, pleased to see the $20 million worth of funding to the First Peoples Assembly to negotiate treaty on behalf of Aboriginal Victorians. Is, is that enough? Um, does that go far enough um, to enable the Assembly to, to do its job to move us towards tweet, treaty? Look, um, I can't comment on whether it's enough. I suspect not, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm hoping in May um, there might be some light at the end of the tunnel in that space. But, um, you know, they're at a crucial, uh, the treaty, the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria, at a crucial um, uh, part in the, in the whole process. So um, I, I believe this will uh, go a long way to achieving uh, what we need to achieve in the first innings. Yeah, they need um, they need the ability and, and the resources to be able to get out there physically and go out to communities and, and have conversations within those settings because, um, of course, as we know, Zoom meetings don't cut it when it comes to this sort of uh, intense negotiation and, um, uh, and, and listening. Um, one of the things that you did mention, um, Jill, was that there was $21.4 million tagged for expanding suicide prevention and follow-up care, which is only um, devoted to the HOPE program and will not be uh, culturally safe for uh, an Aboriginal community controlled organisation-led response. Um, What's what's the deal with with that funding and and with that program? Uh, At this stage, Daniel, I don't know the detail of that, Um, but it is disappointing that... um, um, that um, the, the bulk of that funding um, is, I suppose, being channeled away from the um, Aboriginal community-controlled health sector. There's a big need, um, you know. Suicide prevention is is something that we need to focus on, given that the um, since um, the beginning of this year, um, suicides. Uh, uh, are more frequent. Yeah. And so I, I really think we need to focus in that area. And, you know, the, the young people too, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
yeah. kids, kids, you know, in no, their I, I, um, late teens and twenties, um, you know, uh, probably crave their social network probably more than any other element of the community. And so the mental health um, toll that has played on um, some of our younger people, and we do have a younger population in um, Victoria in terms of the Aboriginal population. So uh, we need all the support that we can get pumped into supporting um, those kids, hopefully get back up on, on their feet. Yes. And it's really, I mean, uh, I think about, I don't know, four months ago when the Commonwealth Government made an announcement of the $15 million for for mental health, not Aboriginal mental health, for mental health here in Victoria. Yep. Um, And the State Government worked really hard to stand up those um, mental health hubs. Uh, We again... Uh, were left out of that um, planning and also left out of um, um, having access to some of those resources. It is disappointing. Uh, I mean, mental health as a result of um, um, restrictions and lockdown and, and, and fear and all, it's going to be is a humongous problem in our communities, uh, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. So yeah, well, I'm like, not like... confident that... <laughs> Yeah, like like we yeah, said that um, uh, you know the the next um, because it's a because it's a weird time the the next state budget is um, six months away so let's hope we can have conversations yeah. around support for mental health for for younger Aboriginal people but let's also see if we can um, continue the conversation around support from um, for women that have experienced domestic violence we know that domestic violence has gone up during the pandemic as well um, before I let you go uh, Jill um, what are you doing um, uh, for Christmas are you, are you getting away anywhere or are you get to stay put. Um, what's what's the GA with you? Um, no, I'm going to stay put. Um, today was a bit of a, um, a special day for me today, Daniel. I um, was allowed to go and pick my mum up from ACES, which is an aged care, yes. Aboriginal aged care facility, pick her up and take her out to Miller's so she can do some shopping. <laughs> to Miller's, uh, fantastic. Yeah. Now, so now how old your mum? Tell, tell people how how old your mum is. My mum is ninety four, and she's going strong. Uh, ninety four years old. Yeah, going re- very strong. She uh, she's been in lockdown for many months. Yep. Um, in an aged care facility, ACES. So uh, she's been kept safe. That's um, She's felt lonely and yeah. felt isolated to a little bit from her family. Um, I got her an iPad and um, um, got her an iPad and they tried to help her to learn how to use the iPad. She struggled with it, but every now and then she managed to pick up and take one of our calls. I reckon she'll Um, get there with it. Because hers is a remarkable story and I would like to have you on the show just to talk about her story alone Um, because uh, her, her, her memory goes back to almost first contact, you know, or or with people who had yes. direct um, first contact with um, with European settlers exactly. or um, invaders. Yes. Um, unfortunately, we can't do that now. Um, got to go because we've got to wrap this show no. up. But thank you so All much right. for your time. Thank you for the work you do. And uh, we'll chat again soon. Thanks, Daniel. You knew. Take care, bud. No worries. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. 
The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>